Hi, everyone, and welcome to All Things Creative. I'm your host, Linda Riesenberg Fissler. And before I bring in our guest for today, I just wanted to remind everybody that the Representational Art Conference will be starting on March 31st. On April 1st, I'll be presenting a paper at that conference. And I hope anybody who's listening to me in California will stop by, hopefully for more than a day. There are a number of um, great folks that are going to be presenting at this conference. Roger Dean, who is a concept artist for uh, Avatar, is one of the key speakers. Um, Cheech Marin is another key speaker. He'll be talking about Latino or Hispanic art. And um, also Jim Jennison, who is a uh, Vermeer expert, um, somewhat controversial, but he will be there. And if you want to argue with him about Vermeer, he'll probably welcome the challenge. So, um, Again, that, that conference starts on March 31st and goes through April 4th. And hopefully you'll stop out at Ventura at the Crown Plaza and stop in and say hello. So without further ado, let's let's get to today's art chat or today's chat. We're kind of veering away from art on this one. Um, hopefully my artist friends will um, forgive me, I guess. <laughs> I don't know if forgive's the right word, but um, but actually I, I as I said in an earlier um, podcast that I wanted to kind of branch out. That's why we went from art chats to all things creative and, and talk about more creative things uh, along with writing, because you all know that I'm an author as well. So today we welcome Kit Frick and Kit is from, um, I don't know, Kit, are you in, you're not in Pittsburgh now, you're in New York? I'm in New York now, but I'm from Pittsburgh originally, and I am actually moving back to Pittsburgh this summer. So I'm sort of uh, in both places at the moment as we renovate a family house and get ready for that move. Oh, cool. So Kit is a novelist, a poet, and um, is a MacDowell Colony Fellow. As she just said, she's originally from Pittsburgh. She studied creative writing at the Sarah Lawrence College and received her MFA from Syracuse University. So there's the New York, the pool to New York. <laughs> um, when she is putting complicated, oh, I'm sorry, when she isn't putting complicated characters in an impossible situation, Kit edits poetry and literary, literary fiction for a small press, edits for private clients and mentors emerging artists through Pitch Wars, which I'm going to ask you what that is. Sure. <laughs> <In a few laughs> um, she is the author of young adult novel, See All the Stars, and that was um, published by Simon & Schuster and uh, McElderry Books, Margaret K. McElderry Books, and the forthcoming All Eyes on Us. Is that forthcoming? I thought you said, is that launched already? It's forthcoming. June fourth is the publication date. Okay. So just just a couple months. Okay, June fourth. Um, all eyes on us, and then Windermere in twenty twenty. Her debut full length poetry collection is a small rising up in the lungs, and that is on New American Press and was published in twenty eighteen. So welcome, Kit. Thank you. Yeah. So um, thanks for accepting my invitation to join the show. Um, I really can't wait to get into to uh, finding out about your writing process and and your work. So what is yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about See All the Stars. Sure. That's so your first book, right? Not it your is. Book. Yeah. Right. Uh, so I had both See All the Stars and the Poetry Collection published in 2018 last year. Uh, See All the Stars came first in August. It's my first novel. It's a young adult contemporary suspense. and um, 
it is, I'll tell you a little bit about um, the sort of core inspiration for the book, I suppose. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, Okay, great. So my idea for the novel started with a what if question. I'm drawn to complicated characters and my writer brain delights in putting them in really tough situations and then empowering them to dig their way out. So I had this what if question that kept tumbling around in my brain. What if a girl lost all of her friends and her boyfriend in one fell swoop? And what if she was partly responsible for what happened? And then Ellery's story unfolded from there. So I knew I wanted to tell the story both of what led up to this event that tore Ellery's group of friends apart and also how she was going to cope in the aftermath and figure out a way to move on. So I knew I had these sort of two stories that would uh, both lead up to and then come after this climactic event. And I had the idea to, instead of telling it in one narrative, chronological beginning to end storyline, to instead write it as two stories that would alternate. And we would get one chapter in the past and then one chapter in the present. And the mystery for the reader would be trying to work out what happened in the middle that uh what was this event so um so the story is told in two timelines alternating between past and present and they they lead toward the end toward the discovery of what happened during ellery's junior year um this traumatic event cool that yeah that, that's you, you kind of struck a, a chord with me because I'm taking some of, I have four books out and well, mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the things I'm doing is, is writing a um, script series. So, okay. and one of the things I started with on the first one, it starts completely different than my first book does. It starts in present day and it's you know, kind of told in flashbacks. So it's kind of interesting that you're doing mm-hmm. something similar, but chapter to chapter. Yeah, I really love interesting narrative techniques. I'm very drawn to that both as a reader and as a writer. I think everything that I've worked on has either been in more than one timeline or from more than one point of view or uh, incorporated other narrative techniques such as uh, the, the book that I'm working on now incorporates a podcast into the text. And I have another project that brings in various uh, found texts, such as uh, news clippings and diary entries and that sort of thing. So I really like narratives that in some way or other differentiate from just a standard chronological narrative. Right, so is the book set in present day, except for your flashbacks? Yeah, see all this. So it's set in the two timelines are the main character, Ellery's. It begins with the summer after her sophomore year of high school and goes through her junior year of high school. And then the that's the past timeline. And then the present timeline is her senior year. So they're both they're they're closely knit timelines. Um, and yes, it's it's contemporary present day. Oh, cool. So it sounds interesting. So just out of curiosity. Um, we're probably the first young adult author that I've talked to. Um, oh, wonderful. Other, yeah, other than, you know, like at a different expos and things like that. But mm-hmm. um, 
Do you find that more than young adults are interested in your books, like people who maybe would like a, a, a fast read or a quick read or something a little bit different? Do, are you finding that your um, reader base is, is really over a number of years versus just young adult? Yes, it is. And I think that that is true for uh, for young adult as an age category in general. Of course, the the primary, the target audience are teens. And, sure. you know, that's true for all of us. And uh, but it is also the case that there is a lot of enthusiasm for young adult novels among adult readers. Um, and, you know, you'll, you'll see various percentages thrown out and I don't really know what is true, whether it's, you know, 30% of the audience for YA is actually adults or 60%, you know, I, I don't know, but it's definitely the case that I have readers who are teens and adults and there's really no, um, you know, I would say that there is probably a, um, a firm early point on the age spectrum for the book. I, I would not recommend it to readers, say, under the age of 12, because it does have some sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So, <laughs> um, so you know, probably there is, you know, an, an early end of the age spectrum. But I have readers, you know, from 12 on up, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess so. So the writer in me is saying, so how do you target? Do you know that you're you're writing specifically for that teen teen years, and then if other people enjoy it, that's great. Or do you have this little nagging thing in the back of your head that says, hmm, maybe I should be putting this in here to to keep those others interested, or do you just don't worry no. about it? I, de I think definitely the former. I have I have teens in mind as my audience yeah. when I'm writing, and I think that the appeal of YA to an adult audience has a lot to do with the fact that we feel very close to our adolescent years, mm -hmm. at least I do, and I think from talking to other YA authors about this phenomenon, this seems to be a fairly... Uh, relatable experience we we still relate a lot with our teenage selves and so as adults we're drawn to reading about teenagers because they're having experiences that still feel very close to us so i have never found as an author that there's anything that i need to do specifically to appeal to a crossover market of teens and adults that just happens i think automatically. So I'm not, I'm not worried about adults when I'm writing. I think they will find their way to reading my YA books if it appeals to them. And that's great, but I'm definitely focused on writing for teenagers. Cool. Cool. That's what I would have expected, but I thought I'd ask. <laughs> yeah. Good question. Yeah. So um, let's go, let's go into the writing process a little bit for you. Sure. Um, Take us through a typical day. How many hours do you write? Is it that structured? Are, are you kind of like bopping from a couple different things or do you just close the door and that's it? Don't bother me. No, I am definitely bopping. That's a good, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good description. Um, so it's hard to talk about a 
typical day because, uh, well, I'll give you a little overview of what my uh, writing life looks like right now. So I work from home, um, which I've been doing for almost three years now, but I don't write full time. Um, I'm self-employed. I own a private editorial practice and I also work as a senior editor for Black Lawrence Press, which is an independent publisher of poetry and fiction. And I have a couple of other freelance gigs in addition to that. So I'm self-employed and I'm based from home, but my time is divided between writing and editorial work. So a typical weekday for me, Monday through Friday, involves, it's probably heavily skewed toward the editorial work, which I consider to be sort of my day job work. Mm -hmm. And then on the weekends, that's when I have the majority majority of my writing time. And the way that I schedule my day depends a lot on where I am in a particular writing project. So if I'm drafting a new project, if I'm involved in the first draft process of writing, then I do try to schedule time to write every day or as close to every day as possible, even if it's only for maybe an hour or two during a weekday and then a much longer stretch on the weekends. I do like to have that momentum when I'm drafting. So ideally, I am writing every day at that point. But if I am revising, then that's often not, I don't need that same sense of momentum and it's difficult for me to schedule so that I do have writing time every day because I do have other jobs. Um, so then I'm often working primarily on editorial work during the week and primarily on revising during the weekends. Um, so it does, it does differ a bit based on what stage I'm in of a writing project. But um, it has been very nice over the past three years having much more control over my schedule when I was working a full-time job that involved going to an office every day. Then I really couldn't write during the week at all. I was just too burned out. I live in New York City. And so in addition to work time, there was also an hour commute on either end of my day. And um, I am just not one of those people that's good at getting up at 5 a.m. to write or writing well into the night. So then my writing time really was much more delegated to the weekends. So it's it's very nice right now. I feel very privileged to be able to schedule a couple hours during the day on a weekday when I'm drafting. Um, it's It's really done a lot for both how quickly I can move through a first draft of a project instead of draft. I drafted See All the Stars over about seven months when I was still working full-time and that was just writing on weekends and then my second novel All Eyes on Us I drafted in about two and a half months so it's made a huge difference. And the same the same has gone for subsequent projects, my drafting time, um, because I'm able to schedule time in during the day. It's really compressed um, how long it takes me to move through a first draft, which mm -hmm. is great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So 
Um, do you consider your first draft more like a free write where you're not all that concerned about the structure itself? You're just fleshing out scenes, if you will, or are you a lot more structured than that? I am. I've gotten increasingly structured with every book. So for for See All the Stars, I it was my it was my second novel that I had written. Um, the first novel is not published, will never be published, should never be published. <laughs> um, but it was a it was a great learning experience just in terms of figuring out that I could, in fact, write a novel um, and giving me the confidence to move forward with the next project. Um, so with that, with that first book, I, I think I did kind of free write it. I had, I had some notes, I had concept ideas. I didn't really do anything in the way of scene outlining though. With See All the Stars, I was a little bit more purposeful about it, but I did something that I would never recommend if you are trying to write a book that is not chronological, like mine is. Um, and that was, I wrote those two timelines. I wrote all of the scenes in the past timeline. And then I wrote all of the scenes in the present timeline. And then I attempted to weave them together. And so I knew from the beginning that I wanted the chapters to alternate. I knew that that was going to be the ultimate structure for the book. Mm -hmm. But I did not know enough about outlining or planning out a novel to figure out a way to write scenes that took place in the present before I'd written all of the past. I thought the only way that I could do it was to write everything that happened in the past and then write everything that happened in the present. And that created a huge challenge for me in revision because <laughs> I had no transitions. You know, nothing, nothing that happened in chapter one had any bearing on anything that happened in chapter two and vice versa. So I created a huge amount of work for myself on the back end by drafting that way. But that's where I was as a writer at that point. So I don't think I could have done it differently then. Now the um my my third YA novel uh which is coming out in 2020 actually takes place in three timelines and two points of view you know I just keep making things harder <laughs> for myself with every book um but by the time I had gotten to that novel my outline was very detailed mm -hmm. and um for all Eyes on Us, the second YA book that's coming out in June, that book is written in two points of view, but it's one timeline. And I did outline. Um, I like to have a sort of brief sketch of what are the major plot point or plot points that I'm going to hit in a scene and then why it matters. Those are the two things that I wanna know going in to writing the scene. So it gets at both what's happening in the scene and also why is this important to the character arc that I am moving through with this character. So that's a sort of uh, uh, check and balance for myself to make sure that I'm not writing a scene that is 
actually seems important in terms of plot, but is actually not important in terms of the story arc. Um, so I have to know what needs to happen and why it matters before I go into writing the scene. And I do that now for uh, every novel that I write. Cool. Yeah, well, it's, it's really kind of interesting because I, there are so many different ways creative ways, if you want to call them that way, processes that everybody goes through. And um, it's it's always kind of interesting whether you call it a first draft or a free write or something. I mean, I write probably a huge free write and it's just because mm -hmm. I have so many scenes running through my head. Like my free writes are typically 350,000 words. So, oh my goodness. So, so <laughs> the, the weaving and transition part that you're talking about, I so get that. Yeah. <laughs> Because one of the things that I'm doing is I'm, when I go through it is I'm like, do I want to keep this scene? Do I not want to keep this scene? Maybe this scene comes in another book later on as a flashback. So, you know, it's nice to have all that material to go through. But then again, it is just so overwhelming, as you found out with your first book, right. Stars. It's just so overwhelming to decide, you know, what that is. So, it, but it's really also really nice to hear that you know, I'm not alone with bopping back and forth between things and, and, you know, and not possibly getting some writing done each day. Um, you know, you, you have, like you said, a day job, uh, with your editing. Um, right. So, yeah, so it's, it's really, I, I always find that interesting to hear how other people, other writers, you know, do their work. Yeah. Right. And and I will say that even though I am an outliner, it doesn't mean that then I come up with a first, exactly a first, it doesn't mean that I come up with a first draft that then does not require structural revision right. ever. Just because I have mapped it out doesn't mean that my first thought was the best thought in terms of the way the book will be structured. So um, it's not a it's not a perfect solution for having a perfectly plotted book or anything like that. But it does mean that I don't end up with drafts that are three hundred and fifty thousand words. So you know, I, so there is a for me there is a benefit in terms of some level of efficiency and um, ensuring that I am sticking to a specific story that I am trying to tell, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's right or that there won't be changes in terms of ordering of events or chapters that don't belong. But I have found that the more proficient I've become with outlining, the less of that happens. So yeah. I, it's it's a process that works for me, but it's not uh, it's not any guarantee of structural perfection by any stretch of the imagination. Right. Yeah. It's it's. I don't actually. I guess my favorite, and and you're more than welcome to tell me what your favorite part of the writing process is. But I think mm -hmm. my favorite part of the writing process is actually that free write because I'm not worried about grammar. I'm not worried that much about structure. I am just writing what I think you know the next scene is or what happens to uh, some of my characters, but it, it, you know, like one of the, I'm at a point right now where I'm, um, I written probably close to 50,000 words with one of the characters making a choice, a, a specific choice to let's just say, stay where she mm -hmm. is. Okay. It, but now I'm like questioning, Hmm, 
what would, ha- would the book be more interesting if she decides to leave? You know, so I'll probably, right. I'll, I'll probably write down that path and see, and then I'll make the decision later um, whether she stays or goes. But it's one of these things where um, I, I enjoy that part of the process. To me, that's the most creative part of the process. So I enjoy being in that process. How about you? What's your favorite part? Well, it's so interesting to me talking to writers who enjoy drafting because I think I live in a kind of constant state of mild terror during (laughs) (laughs) during the entire drafting process because even and this is probably one of the reasons that I outline because it is a way of tricking myself into sort of like the fake it until you make it uh, (laughs) scenario I tricked myself into thinking okay I have this book that works I just need to write it and so yes I'm in this sort of constant state of mild terror and anxiety the entire time I'm drafting in fear that it's all just going to fall apart until I reach the end and then I feel like I can breathe because even if it's not good yet, which it never is, let's let's be serious. It's right. first draft, yeah. right? Yeah. So even even knowing that it's not anywhere near where it needs to be in order to be the story that I want to tell, it's still on the page. It exists, and once I have that draft, my favorite part of the writing process is revision because then I feel like this huge weight has been lifted off of my shoulders. I've gotten a draft down and then I can really get in and transform that draft into the book that I want it to be through multiple versions, uh, not just through one, uh, not just through one revision, of course. Um, but yes, I'm a, I'm a fear of drafting, love of revising person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is interesting because like you, that we're on two different opposite ends and it's like mm-hmm. the, the seven or eight times that I have to read through my book to make sure that it all comes together. And <laughs> it's like, that's like, just slip my wrists now, <laughs> get it over with. But, um, but it's very important. I mean, it's, I, I do recognize how important that, that step is. Um, I think most of my fans are probably more upset with the fact that I'm taking so long staying in the free write one. And then they'll go like, where are you on the process? Oh, I'm getting ready to do the first draft. It's like, what have you been doing? Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So kind of staying in that first draft free write type of um, place. I think my fans get a little more uh, upset with me because I spend a lot of time <laughs> in that in that area. So, um, but, but yeah, cool. Um, so I, I guess one of the other questions that I had sent you was, are, I, I suppose you don't want to always be writing since you live in that anxiety <laughs> and, te- and terror of, of doing that. So, um, but I'm, I'm sure your mind is still working on things even after you get that first draft done. Yeah. I, I mean, it's certainly the case that even when I'm not writing, I am thinking about stories a lot of the time. Um, I think I'm always, I'm sort of on the alert for story ideas in a lot of the things that I'm doing. So even if I'm just kicking back and watching TV or listening to a podcast, I 
and maybe not actively thinking, okay, maybe there'll be a story idea in this, but a part of my brain is listening mm -hmm. for something that might intersect with the project that I'm currently working on or a future project. So it is hard to switch off that part of the writing brain. And I wouldn't want to switch it off. I mean, it's right. certainly, you know, it's, it's very useful to be tuned in to potential ideas. Um, but I do try to, when I'm not writing to be able I, I need to be able to set it aside to do otherwise I would never get my day job done or you know spend any time quality time with my husband and um you know I'm I try not to be working constantly uh but yes there's definitely a part of my brain that is always switched on to thinking about story and thinking about ideas for right. sure yeah I think I think everybody who lives in that creative world kind of you can't take that whole foot out of that world. It's nope. <laughs> kind of cemented in there and people just have to understand that. So, um, so what's more important to you, character development or the story itself? I don't know that those are things that I really differentiate between. Um, they're so, they're so closely linked for me. Mm -hmm. um, when, I am coming up with an initial idea for a story. It always starts with a character. So I don't, I'm not a, I'm not a writer that will think about a plot concept separate from thinking about who is going to populate that world, um, at least in terms of my, my main character. So, um, so yeah, I don't know that I think of those two things separately. I think that what I will say is a plot lacks meaning to me until it becomes a specific character story. Mm -hmm. So it needs to be about a character faced with an obstacle of some sort and how they are going they face this external obstacle. And that's very general. I mean, that, that could apply to any type of story. I write mostly uh, suspense and thrillers. Um, so there's often a external antagonist who is a person, um, but it could also be an internal obstacle. But yeah, I mean, I think that the for me, the character developing is the story yeah often if that makes sense yeah it does it does um and i think you know most authors would say that the, the character development is you know key to the whole process i mean if you have a very weak character you're going to have a very weak story so exactly right yeah so um we kind of dove into the writing process a little bit deeper probably here in the beginning but um Let's take you back to uh, when the idea popped in your head for See All the Stars. And you, and you did talk about this a, a little bit, but did your did your main character come to you? you did the protagonist come to you immediately and that's how you wrote around it? Or I can't remember. I can't recall what you were talking about. I know you said that you wanted it 
right from the beginning to be um, one chapter from the past, one chapter from the present? Yeah, so when I have, um, the first thing I do when I have an idea for a story, so with Seal the Stars, it started with that what if question about Valerie. What if a girl lost her friends and her boyfriend in one fell swoop? And what if she was partly culpable for, uh, for what happened? So I knew it would be, it would revolve around that question. But then I had, the next thing I had to figure out was who that girl was. And um, so that was, that came first, figuring out who Ellery was. And then the next thing I had to figure out was what happened that split apart this friend group? How was she culpable? So I guess the character came before the plot events in that way. Um, But I start by taking a lot of notes once I, and that that's the free form part of the process for me. That's, okay. that's where, that's where I'm in just like free writing brainstorming mode. Once I have an idea, I'll just sit down with a blank word document and I'll just start typing and um, I'll usually come up with maybe three or four pages of just scattered notes on character setting um what what might happen character relationships um backstory all sort you know there's no sort of uh there's no sort of pattern these notes would not make sense to anyone except me they are just they're they're just for me at this point um and once i have that then i will sit down and try to take everything that I've written and write a kind of succinct pitch for the book. And so that's what I'll end up sending to my agent and say like, okay, I have this idea for this book. What do you think? And she'll weigh in at that point with either like, yes, go write that. Or she'll have a couple of ideas and I will tweak it from there. Um, but the the initial idea, idea stage is just kind of all over the place thinking. And then it gets narrowed into something that looks like a much more neat, hooky pitch. And then, then that gets set aside. Um, and from there, I will start outlining. Um, so that's, I usually spend, I, I would say, now now that I'm able to factor writing time into my weekdays and drafting usually takes me approximately three months, um, I usually spend about that long working on the idea stage before I start drafting. So I'll spend two or three months getting to the point that I'm ready to actually start drafting. So that's a that's a critical part of the process for me. And there's a lot of a lot of work that goes in on the front end so that I am actually able to sit down when I have two hours blocked out to write. I've done a I've done months of work that culminated in a scene outline that I'm able to then sit down to write. So even though my drafting is structured in that way, there's a lot of creative explosion (laughs) that happens (laughs) beforehand if that makes sense yeah it does it does Uh, i think i i 
believe it does. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do too. So I follow right along with what you're saying. So, um, so tell me about, um, I was actually, this is always the scary part with social media, right? I was out looking at your Facebook page and I saw the, the one post that you had, it was like contract day with Simon and Schuster. Tell us about the uh -huh. process that you took to get to that day, because a lot of people just think that that's something that happened. You know, it's like all of a sudden, boom, there you are overnight. It happens. And that is not the way it happens. Right. No, it sure <laughs> isn't. Um, do you want me to talk about querying or just the point or past that point? What would be? Um, no, it, why don't you take the whole process? Because querying isn't an easy job either. So. Right. So, so starting. Yeah, sure. So just starting from the point that there was a point at which I moved from thinking about writing for the sake of writing to writing with publication as a goal in mind. Um, and that really happened with the drafting of See All the Stars. I knew that my ultimate goal was with this manuscript to query agents and to find representation. So. Um, obviously, I had to write and revise the book first, and that was a process that took probably about a year drafting and going through several rounds of revision with beta readers until I got to the point that the manuscript felt as finished as possible as I could get it on my own and ready to query. Um, so at that point, I had been researching agents that represented young adult contemporary and young adult suspense, um, which is what my book is. And I, I sent out about 40 queries for See All the Stars over the course of about three months. Um, so I did not have as long and harrowing of a query journey as I know that many authors do. I got pretty lucky in that I got an offer about three months in. Um, and I, I ended up speaking, I had three, three offers of representation. I spoke with all of those agents to figure out who was going to be the best fit for me personally and for my book. And I ended up signing with Aaron Harris, who was actually the first agent that had offered on the book. And it was definitely a scenario where I just knew from the beginning that she was going to be the right fit for me. Mm -hmm. Um, so I signed with her in March of 2016 and then I revised again with Aaron. We went through two rounds of developmental edits and then a few sort of like lightning round edits, polishing up the first chapter and a couple more targeted things to get it ready to put on submission. And so at that point, Erin shared with me the submission list that she had put together of editors at various imprints. And so we discussed that. And then she shared with me the pitch for the book. And then she put it on submission. And um, then that process took it was the middle of the summer which was probably the worst possible time to go on submission because everyone is on vacation so it dragged out a little bit but um i wound up 
getting an offer from my editor, Rita Remus, at McElderry Books, which is an imprint of Simon & Schuster's children's publishing division in the fall, in September of 2016. And I was actually, I was at the McDowell Colony, um, which was mentioned in my bio that you read at the beginning. I was there when I got the offer of publication um, which was amazing because I was at this sort of magical residency and it was, you know, seeped in writing and it was a wonderful experience, but it was also logistically really tricky because there was no internet in my studio at McDowell. I had no cell phone reception. We had to sketch, there was one landline that the colonists could sign up to use in a sort of basement office and so i ended up scheduling these appointments to have a phone call with the editor and then a phone call with my agent and um eventually she ended up like texting me the uh offer of publication because there was no other way to reach me um so that was uh, obviously very, very exciting. Uh, so that was that fall. And then I did get contracts then um, a couple months later, those came in. And um, yeah, I don't know what, what else, what else can I uh, illuminate about the, no, the querying or yes, submission it, process? That's actually um, probably a fast track uh, more than than you think than what I typically hear when I talk with others. Um, yes, they, I did. Not, I I got pretty I got pretty lucky in terms of the timing. I mean, it took it took years as a writer to get to the point where I could write see all the stars that I could write something that actually would garner an offer of representation from an agent that would be publishable that could be put on submission to publishers i mean i i went to i went to college for writing specifically i graduated in 2004 and i got my mfa again in writing graduated in 2012 so there was a you know there was uh 16 years from the point when i first went to college with the goal of studying writing and becoming a writer in mind and 2016 when i signed with an agent so you know 16 right. years right. happened where i was working toward that goal and then you know i think anytime you hear a writer's story that sounds like oh my gosh it happened so fast <laughs> like you know kit went from querying agents to having a offer of publication in just under a year which is true but right. 16 years happened before that where i was working toward it so i think it's always um it's always good when you can hear a writer's more complete story because it's very rarely the case that anyone you know, sits down to write their first novel, having no writing experience before, and you know, within a year they have a publishing contract. Like that, that sort of overnight success is almost uh, unheard of. I mean, that right. almost never happens. Right. But, uh, yeah. yeah, it was a great point for you to point out the 16 years prior to less right. publication, <laughs> because that's that really is i mean that's the area where you're putting in if you want to call them dues or whatever that gets you to the point where you know 
if you want to call it marketable, gets you to the point of finding representation and and having the publishing contracts you know come to you. I mean, it's um, I'm I'm self-published, um, indie published. So mm -hmm. uh, and I have and in all honesty, I haven't spent any time looking for an agent. Right. <laughs> but at some point, I'll probably end up doing that. But I look at this as this is my 16 years that you put in. This is mm -hmm. the beginning process for me because I spent a lot more time, you know, oil painting um, in the and probably have been doing that for close to 20 years now. And um, and then decided to go back to my first love, which was writing. So, yeah. um, you know, so I know I have to put some time in and you know, we'll get there at some point. Yeah, I'm sure. But uh, I'm having fun. And that's to me, I mean, that's the good thing about what we chose, what we've chosen to do, which writing is that it's the fun part. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit. Um, See All the Stars is available on an audiobook. So tell us um, how that process worked. Yeah. So, um, Part of that contract with Simon and Schuster, um, one of the rights that gets negotiated between your agent and the publishing house when you sign a traditional publishing contract are the audio rights. And so in this instance, we negotiated to retain the rights. So it meant that um, I and my agency retained the rights to the audio. So when we had a finished edited book when i'd gone through the developmental edits and the book had been put into copy edits um with simon and schuster at that point my agency then put seal the stars on audio submission to the various audiobook publishers that publish ya audiobooks um and so we ended up selling the audio rights to Brilliance Audio, which is a subsidiary of Audible. They do um, they do Audible's uh, physical audiobook publishing. So in other words, they do the the CDs that get distributed to libraries, et cetera. And then, of course, there's also the digital MP3 audio. But in any case, um, so we sold the audio rights to Brilliance Audio. And then the audiobook process was actually really fun because they, um, I, I retained uh, narrator approval, which was really exciting because that's not something that authors just automatically get. That was something that my agency negotiated for me and I was very appreciative for because it meant that Brilliance uh, auditioned narrators for the project and then they sent me audio samples of several narrators reading and I was then able to choose who would narrate the audiobook. So that's something that you would have as an author complete creative control over if you are putting out your own audiobook. But if you were traditionally publishing your audiobook such as I was, that's something that can really vary depending on your contract where authors either have no approval, which is often the case when um, you don't retain audio rights and your publisher keeps them. So if, for instance, Simon and Schuster had retained my audio rights and had decided to make an audiobook for See All the Stars, it's probably the case that they would have hired a narrator and I would not have been looped into that. 
process as the author. Um, sometimes authors have, uh, what is it called? Um, I'm forgetting the exact term for it, but it's not approval, it's consult, that's what it is. So sometimes you have creative consult over the narrator. So you might get sort of a vote in who was chosen, but ultimately it's up to the publisher. But in any case, um, a wonderful audio voice actor named Jess Nahickian narrated See All the Stars. And um, she actually was able, she's local to New York, and she was able to come to my book launch party when See All the Stars came out, which is really fun because I got to meet her in person. Um, but okay, so we selected the narrator, and then at that point, the audiobook publisher went off and made the audiobook, and I sort of didn't hear much else about it until it was published. Um, but then it is really surreal to hear your book being <laughs> narrated. I can only I can only imagine for authors that have sold film rights and actually had a have a film or television series put in development and made for their books what that must be like to see it adapted um, because just hearing your book read by a professional voice actor is amazing mm -hmm. um, but yeah it was really cool that's one of my favorite parts of the publication experience for see all the stars the fact that it is available as an audiobook and um, it was also really important to me for accessibility reasons that it be made into an audiobook because I wanted a um, an audio edition to be available and that's not something that I will necessarily have control over for all of my subsequent books because it depends on whether the rights sell um, or if I then want to uh, put the investment into making an audiobook on my own which may or may not be a possibility depending on the rights. Um, but yeah, super cool. Um, love having my audiobook. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember the uh, first time that I heard my characters um, being read by somebody else professionally. It mm -hmm. just goosebumps like all up and down. It was, it was just so, it was like all of a sudden they weren't just in my head, which was a weird thing. So it was, yeah. Yeah. So kind of crazy. But, um, and then the interesting thing was, is, I have a number of um, British characters and the person that was reading it was doing a British accent. And then all of a sudden I had three British people in the room and he had to figure out a way to make each of them. Distinct. Oh, right. <laughs> and, and then I was, I remember listening to it. And I was like, when did Sean Connery get in my book? Cause he, <laughs> it was Sean Connery accent. It was, it was so funny as I actually wrote the, the person that read it. Um, his name's Stefan Rednicki. But I wrote Stefan a note and said, Sean Connery, really? And he just started laughing because I ran out of accents. <laughs> so it was funny. So um, what's next for you? What projects? I, you, we talked a little bit about uh, what you got coming out in 2019 and um, 2020, Windermere. And um, I'm sorry, the your second book in 2019 that's coming out in June. Seventh. Yeah, all I thought. All I thought you, okay, I thought it was. I didn't want to say it. <laughs> so. Sure. So I can tell you a little bit about both of those projects Great. if you would like. Um, yes, so, uh, so All Eyes on Us is coming out June fourth in hardcover and ebook from McElvary at Simon and Schuster, 
And um, so it is, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm just going to actually read the descriptive copy for the book because I have not yet honed my elevator pitch for this book, which is something <laughs> that I, I should be doing now because it's coming out in three months. Um, but um, okay. So the daughter of small town social climbers, Amanda Kelly is deeply invested in her boyfriend, real estate heir Carter Shaw. He's kind, ambitious, the town golden boy, but he's far from perfect because behind Amanda's back, Carter is also dating Rosalie. Rosalie Bell is fighting to remain true to herself and her girlfriend while concealing her identity from her Christian fundamentalist parents. After years spent in and out of conversion therapy, her own safety is her top priority, but maintaining a fake straight relationship is killing her from the inside. When an anonymous texter ropes Amanda and Rosalie into a bid to take Carter down, the girls become collateral damage and unlikely allies in a fight to unmask their stalker before private uproots their lives. So it is also a YA thriller. I talk about See All the Stars as being more of a suspense. I would say All Eyes on Us is, uh, is definitely a thriller. There is a stalker and there are life and death stakes. Um, but it's also very much about the two girls personal stories. Um, they're both in situations where they're under a really unhealthy amount of pressure from their parents to be people who their parents want them to be for reasons that make sense to them, but are not the best choices actually uh, for their daughters. So it's about the tension between living up to the expectations of family and community and making the choices that are best for you. Sounds like a great book. It's great back blurb there. I like that. <laughs> the yeah. Really good. So, Yeah. I'm so excited about it. Um, yeah. I I've been, I've been working on this book um, actually since before See All the Stars sold, I was uh, already drafting it. So it's been several years in the making and I'm really excited about it coming out into the world in June. Um, yeah. And then the, the third YA book that, uh, that we've mentioned a couple of times, so I'll tell you a little bit about that one also. Mm -hmm. So it's sold under the title Windermere. Um, which is what's listed in my bio, we're actually in the process of, that was a working title, and we're in the process of finalizing the title for it. So um, I don't have that to share with you yet, um, but it is scheduled for the summer of 2020, also from my same publisher, McElderry at Simon & Schuster. Um, and in lieu of a title, I am right now calling it my YA Rebecca in the Hamptons book um, because it is loosely based on my favorite romantic thriller of all time, Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca. Mm. And it is about a girl who takes a nanny job in the Hamptons during the summer after her high school graduation. And she gets swept up in the mystery of a missing local girl when she realizes that she may play a part in the girl's disappearance. Hmm. So also, also a thriller. Um, and yeah, so we have a little, little ways to wait on that one. Um, I'm still, still in developmental edits with my editor. Um, but yeah, summer 2020 cool. title to come. <laughs> yeah, writing thrillers, suspense mystery is fun, isn't it? 
It is so fun. Yeah. It's so fun. I throw an extra historical in on mine. Mine are set back in the 1979, 1980s. Mm-hmm. So, so there's that historical timeline that you always have to bring into it. But I mean, it's just some of the mystery. I, I really enjoy writing the mystery suspense thriller type of, of book. It's, and, and those little plot twists that really throw the readers off. It's just so fun to hear your readers talk about that. Do they, do they come back and say, I can't believe that you did this or, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so. I, like, I can't, like I'm shaking after the ending. I'm like, yes, great. Success. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like we love teasing you. So, <laughs> Kit, thanks so much for being with us. Um, we're coming up on a, on just about an hour. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us? Or oh, I can't think of anything. Thank you so much for having me today, Linda. This yeah. was so fun. Yeah, this was this was a lot of fun. Stay in touch, and um, I will naturally um, send everything to you that needs to be sent so that you Great. can share this with your, with your fans. Cause I'm sure they'll, they'll want to hear from you as well. And um, thank you again for being part of all things creative. I think you, painted a really great picture of what it's like to be an author. So, so thank you so much for that. Thank you, Linda. Okay. So, so next uh, art chat for folks that are listening, will be with Mandy Thies also who lives in New York city and she is a co-founder for the Da Vinci Institute. And I'll be interview, interviewing um, Mandy next week sometime on the 21st. So look for that one as well. But until then, hope you enjoyed listening to Kit talk about her projects and her work. I, I think it was really a, a wonderful discussion. And so you all have a great time uh, until we meet again.